And uh, kids, you've probably noticed already that I've got a, a tent up here this morning and going to do a little children's message involving this. Uh, first, let me just ask any of our, our kids with us this morning, how many of you have ever stayed in a tent? Oh, a few of you. Okay, a few adults too. Yeah, yeah. Good. Anyone ever set up a tent or take one down? Yeah, a whole bunch of you. Okay, now i got a whole bunch of adults participating. I did say this was the children's message, right? Um, Well, I'm going to actually tie this in uh, with the passage that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. Now, this tent is actually pretty special to me um, because I lived in this tent for about three months one summer. And it's not because I stopped paying rent. Okay, got kicked out of my house or anything. Um, I was actually participating in a bike tour, though, called Sea to Sea a number of years ago, and there's a few other members of our congregation who participated in that uh, tour as well. It was back in the summer of 2013, and we spent nine weeks riding across the country, and along the way, um, where we would stay each night were different parks or campgrounds or, or different, actually, school athletic fields, wherever we could pitch a tent, and that's uh, what we did each night. We would get to our destination, and I would pitch this tent, and um, um, this is where I would this is where I would live basically for those couple of months. Now the nice thing about tents is obviously that they can pack down, and so this is the bag that came with this tent. And when you look at it this way, um, it obviously doesn't look like it could fit into this. But the nice thing about tents is that they're really just two parts. You've got kind of the fabric which attaches to these poles with these hooks, and that's what gives the tent its shape and its form. But once you disconnect those hooks from the poles, Very quickly, you can lay it down a lot smaller. And that's what I would do every single day. We'd get to our campground, set up the tent, stay there for the night. But then the next morning, this is what everyone on the tour would do. You'd hear tent poles start clicking around 6 a.m. in the morning. And you actually wanted to be on the earlier side because that meant that you still got the good breakfast. (laughs) Because if you slept too long, you know, it could be that the bacon or the pancakes had all been eaten or already packed up, and, you know, then you didn't quite have everything that you wanted to eat. So we try and do it as fast as possible, and this tent I got really good at because, like I said, every day it was up, every day it was down, and so it was, I kind of memorized how to do it um, pretty easily. But like this, right, how's that going to fit in that bag? Well, the nice thing about tent poles is they, ha- they have this elastic cord running through them so that you can just very quickly do this and get them to a much more manageable size, right? And so every day, every morning, that's what I would do. I would take these tent poles out of the tent um, and I would take them apart like that. And then... Like I said, get to breakfast, get all ready to ride for the day, and then we would take off riding. And on that tour, our shortest days um, were anywhere from about 30 to 40 miles. In fact, I think our shortest ride day was when we were in Holland, Michigan, and we rode here to the Grand Rapids area, and that was our shortest ride day. Our longest days, however, um, were upwards of 90 or even sometimes 100 miles. Um, And so we would ride all day and get into our campsite, and then you'd kind of set things up and and get ready for the evening. Um, This specific tent is actually a backpacking tent, so it's meant to be very lightweight. Fortunately, I didn't have to carry it with, though, because on that tour, what we did after you would take apart your tent is we would just put it on the semi-trailer that followed us place to place, and so it was already there when we would get there. 
There's actually another bag that comes with this tent, and that's for these, these tent poles. So after you take them all apart, put them together like this, and they all drop right down in here, nice and easy. And easier when I practiced it this morning. And then from there, it's a pretty simple process. Because for this one, all I really have to do is just fold it over kind of one time on this side. And then on the other side as well. Just fold it back the other way. And then the way that I always did it was I always used the tent pole. Just set it right there. A nice, easy, roll it right up, kind of like a burrito or a Swiss cake roll. And from there, it seems a lot more manageable, right? Maybe you can make it fit in this bag. And there you have it. Oh! Thank you, your expectations are really low. <laughs> I was not expecting applause. And also, if you're, wondering why, if you're wondering why I'm dressed down, it's because I did rehearse this a few times. I said, there's no way I'm doing that in a suit. So. But there it is. And that's the nice thing about tents, is they're portable, right? They're mobile. You can easily take them someplace, set them up, stay there for the night, take them down, and then move on. And in our passage for this morning, which we're going to look at in just a little bit, we'll actually see that the Israelites had a tent. It was a lot bigger than that, um, and they had tents for themselves, but they had a very special tent called the tabernacle that they took with them everywhere that they went. In the same way that I was just able to pack that up, the Israelites would pack up the tabernacle, and they'd bring it with them. And the reason why it was so special was because that was actually God's tent, and he himself actually would dwell among them in the tabernacle. And the point of the tabernacle was that wherever Israel went, no matter where they traveled when they were moving um, after the exodus from Egypt to the promised land, God's presence went with them. He was always with them, always near to them, always present with them. And kids, one thing that I want you to know is that the same is still true for us today. Wherever we go, whatever we experience, whatever we go through in our lives, God is always still with us. He's still present with us. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, he sent us his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit goes with us wherever we go. He's always near, always near to us. That's part of God's grace to us. And that's actually something we're going to see in our passage for this morning. So I'd like to have you turn to our passage this morning, which is actually Exodus 25. Verses 1 through 9, and we've actually sort of got a two-part um, passage this morning, because uh, after we read Exodus 25, we're going to flip to the end of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38 as well. But Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9, and this is what the text says. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from any, everyone whose heart prompts them to give. And this is the offering you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. Goat's hair. Ram skins dyed red and another type of durable leather. Acacia wood. Olive oil for the light. 
spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gemstones to be mounted on the ephod and the breastplate. Then tell them to make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then flipping to the last chapter of Exodus, Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, the people would set out. But if the cloud did not lift... They did not set out until the day that it lifted. And so the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in the cloud by night. And this was in the sight of all the Israelites in all their travels. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, a few weeks ago I read um, a rather interesting article about an unexpected side effect of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is that Americans are moving closer to family. Um, According to the article, a recent Pew Research survey found that roughly 5% of Americans moved within the past year uh, for reasons that they said were related to COVID-19. So while 40% of those movers uh, went to a new community that they'd never been before, at least 17% of them reported that the reason they had moved was to, to be closer to family. That number is probably a little low, though, uh, because as the author of the article pointed out, um, that statistic didn't take into consideration the 14% of college students who responded and said that they moved after their college campus had closed down, or the more than 30% of people who said that they moved uh, because of job loss or uh, financial problems. Both groups also that might have moved closer to or even in with other family members. And this actually continues something that's been going on for a little while because according to the article, already before COVID-19, the average American adult lived only 18 miles from their mom. And that is a, a, actually a pretty significant reversal of trends that we've seen for the last number of years of younger people moving further and further away from family. That's actually started to change. And it turns out that Americans are actually staying closer to family than the last couple of generations. In fact, researchers have also found that multi-generational living or living with one's parents or grandparents is the highest now that it's been since 1950. In fact, 64 million Americans now live in a multi-generational home. And so in sum, Americans uh, reversing trends of the last number of years are moving closer to family, and the pandemic has actually sped that up. Well, in the same way, we actually see something similar in our text for this morning. Only this time, instead of somebody moving closer to be with family, what we actually see here in this passage is God moving closer to his people. Now, truth be told, we actually sort of already saw that last week. Um, If you were here with us last week, we were looking at Exodus 19 and God's meeting with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And so fresh off their exodus, the Israelites go out into the wilderness and they have sort of this meeting um, at Mount Sinai with God. And like we said, that's an important moment. Okay? That's an important development in terms of, of God's relationship or how he interacts with us as human beings. Because like we said, it's actually the first time in scripture where we see God meet with an entire group of people. Uh, before that, uh, certain individuals had had interactions with God before. But the Israelites' encounter with God at Mount Sinai is the first time that we see God meeting not just with persons, but actually with people 
plural. And here's why that's so important. Okay? Here's part of why that's uh, noteworthy or significant. It's important because at least for God, there's a lot less certainty involved with that. And what I mean by that is that in the past when God was interacting, you know, just with individual persons, he could pretty much pick and choose who he was going to work with, right? He could sort of make sure that they would work out. He would kind of gauge whether or not they were the right people for what he wanted to, to do with them. You know, this Noah guy, he'll probably buy my crazy boat plan, you know. Maybe God's looking at Abram and Sarai and thinking, I think they'll believe me that they'll have a child even in their old age. Um, you know, this Moses guy, he might take a bit of convincing, but I think I can use him too. Obviously, if you know the stories of those people, there's definitely some hiccups along the way. You know, Noah does some pretty strange stuff after the flood. Abram and Sarai didn't always trust God the way that we like to remember them as, as faithful people. And Moses tried his best to wiggle out of the work that God assigned to him. But in the end, God was able to select these individuals and accomplish his purposes through them. He was still able to use them. Because after all, when you're working with individuals... Um, or just a, a couple people, a select group, you can kind of train them, right? Sort of maybe coach them up, guide them through whatever issues might come up along the way. But when you go from that to all of a sudden working with an entire group of people, it's a whole different ball game, right? Anyone who's ever tried to coach a sports team knows that. You know, you might have a star player or two, and they're fun to work with, but getting a whole team to work well together is an entirely different story. And it also takes an entirely different approach. And that's what's going on here. God is going from working with individual players to working with a team. He's making the shift from just working with persons to people. He's going from just having relationships with the likes of Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and others to now having a relationship with the Israelites as a whole. And again, there's a lot less certainty involved in that. There's a lot less certainty because when you go from just dealing with individuals or people that you get to sort of handpick to a whole group, there's suddenly a much bigger spread in terms of character, in terms of commitment, in terms of desire to have the relationship go well. And to illustrate that, let's just go back to that analogy of coaching a team. Um, Growing up, baseball was my favorite sport. I was a, a diehard White Sox fan when I was a kid, which I know is not a popular thing to say in Michigan. Um, I've, uh, Tony has already told me he doesn't really want to get to know me much better. Um, um, and uh, actually, the last number of years, I've become a little bit bigger football fan, and so the Bears have kind of eclipsed the White Sox in terms of my loyalty. Um, but uh, I still like to keep tabs on the Sox. And I also played baseball for a number of years growing up. Um, I was never very good, or I, knew, I was never great, but I, I like to think I had at least a few okay seasons. Um, what I didn't have a lot of, though, were successful teams that I was a part of. Uh, for whatever reason, most of the teams I ended up on were pretty bad. And you might say, well, there's a common denominator there, Brandon. Um, I remember one year especially. Um, I was on a team that was just, we were downright awful. Uh, if I remember correctly, we only won two or maybe three games, and even that might have been a little too generous. Um, and then to add insult to injury, my dad was actually our manager that year. So our failure was a family affair for all of us. Um, now that said, I don't remember our poor performance actually being my dad's fault. 
Uh, maybe it's just because I'm his son, but I remember him doing everything he could to try and coach us up. I mean, he had us practice. He did all the drills with us. He tried his best to make us into a good team. The problem, at least as I remember it, is that we just had some really bad players. You see, it was my dad's first year coaching in the league that we were in, and he had stepped into the role after another guy had stepped out, and they just needed somebody to come in and manage this team. All of the other coaches, though, had coached before, which meant that they knew the players from previous years. They knew who was good and who wasn't. And so when the draft came up where all the coaches got together to pick their teams, my dad was at a disadvantage. While all the other coaches were selecting the best players that they could, my dad unintentionally ended up selecting a bunch of the bad ones. We certainly had a good player or two, but we also had a few who just didn't really know how to play. For instance, we had this one kid who would run away from the ball every time somebody hit a ground ball to him. Okay? Uh, we had another kid uh, who would regularly just sort of daydream in the outfield and more than one time had a fly ball land right next to him as he was just sort of, although in his defense he actually did catch one one time that way because he was just sort of standing there with the glove out. It was the luckiest catch I've ever seen in my life. Um, and we also had the kid who I think set a record by never getting a single hit all season long. Okay? So with talent like that, or in our case, the lack of it, you're not making up for that. No amount of practice, no amount of drills. And yet that is precisely the sort of situation that God is stepping into with the Israelites here. He's not dealing just with star players anymore. They're not all Noah's, okay? They're not all Abraham's and Sarah's. They're not all Moses. Instead, there's a lot more uncertainty God is entering into relationship not just with individual people that he can mostly count on, but with a people. And certainly some of them are going to be the sort of faithful people that God desires, right? But as the rest of, of the story of Israel, in fact, the rest of Scripture makes clear, not all of them will be. In fact, some of them will be quite far from that. And yet what we saw last week in Exodus 19 is that God still goes forward with it. He still chooses to do this. He still chooses to enter a relationship with the Israelites. That's the point of Mount Sinai. When God calls the Israelites to him at Mount Sinai, he's calling them with all their faults and with this whole spread and all this uncertainty of how it's going to turn out, he's calling them into a relationship with him. What we see in our text for this morning then is that not only does God choose to enter a relationship with the Israelites, but he also chooses to actually dwell among them too. You see, last week when we saw God first meet with the Israelites at Mount Sinai, we said that there was still a bit of a gap between them, right? Um, Because of God's holiness, there still needed to be some separation between him and the Israelites. Um, And so that's why God has, has Moses actually put up limits around the mountain to keep the people from getting too close to him. And they had to stay down at the bottom of the mountain. Here in Exodus 25, though, we start to see that gap close even more. Because God commands Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. And then skipping to the end of Exodus, uh, the passage we read from Exodus 25, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. And the point is that God isn't going to stay up there at the top of Mount Sinai. 
is people aren't going to constantly have to journey out there into the wilderness, into the desert of Sinai, to the mountain in order to meet him. They're not always going to have to come to Mount Sinai to experience his presence and nearness. Instead, what we see here is that God actually chooses to come down the mountain to his people. He comes down to live with them, to dwell with them, to be there with them always, no matter what and no matter where they go. And just so we're aware, I mean, this is radically different from pretty much every other ancient religion at the time. Um, And that's because it wasn't uncommon for ancient religions uh, to have a mountain somewhere, like the Israelites did, um, that had special significance, if you will, in their religion, or that they revered, that they, that they viewed as holy. And that's because most ancient religions had a mountain someplace where they believed that the gods or God lived. The mountain was the gods' dwelling place. It was their heavenly abode. It's where they resided and lived and ruled the world from. Take Mount Olympus in Greece, uh, for instance. That's probably the most well-known example for us still today. Located on the Olympus Range on the border of Thessaly and Macedonia, it's the highest mountain in Greece. It's also, in Greek mythology, the place where the Greeks believed that the, the gods lived. So that's where Zeus, Athena, Apollo, and all the rest of the Greek pantheon dwelled, ruled, and had their heavenly court. But if you know the mythology then you know that that's also pretty much where they stayed. Because apart from a few notable exceptions, the gods didn't really come down from Mount Olympus. They didn't involve themselves in human affairs. They didn't really pay a lot of attention to us as human beings. Instead, as long as they were getting people sacrifices of food and worship, they were happy. And they didn't really mess with human beings. And that was true for pretty much all the ancient religions of the world. The gods were up here, you know, in the clouds or on a mountain someplace. But we as human beings, we're way down here, down low. Undependable, unreliable human beings that we are, we stay down here. And just like we saw last week in Exodus 19, people didn't go up the mountain to the gods, and the gods didn't come down the mountain to them either. But that changes here. Because this God does come down. In his commentary on this passage, Old Testament scholar Terence Fretheim writes this. He says, The shift in the divine abode from mountain as dwelling place to tabernacle in the midst of Israel is not only a spatial move, it is an important theological move. The language used for God's presence on Mount Sinai becomes the language for God's tabernacle dwelling. God leaves the mountain the typical abode for gods in the ancient Near East, and comes to dwell among the people of God. God is not like the gods who remain at some remove from a messy world, enjoying their own life, often uncaring and oblivious to the troubles of the creatures. God leaves the mountain of remoteness and ineffable majesty and tabernacles right in the center of a human community. No longer are the people or their mediator asked to come up to God. God comes down to them. And that's exactly what we see here in Exodus 25. God comes down to be with his people. Rather than always having to go to him to experience his presence and nearness, God will instead go to his people. That's what the command to build the tabernacle is all about. God is giving his people a portable sanctuary, a mobile dwelling place, a way for his presence to reside and abide with them no matter where they go, no matter where they are, and even no matter what they do, no matter what happens. 
In other words, rather than making the Israelites always come back to him at Mount Sinai, God gives them a version of Mount Sinai that will go with them. And we actually see that even, by the way, uh, in, the, in, in the design of the tabernacle. Uh, commentators have pointed this out for years, but the way God commands the tabernacle to be built almost perfectly mirrors the commands that he gave about Mount Sinai. Uh, for instance, in the chapter just before this one, Exodus 24, God gives sort of a three-part command regarding who is allowed where on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 24, verses 1 through 2, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. In other words, there's sort of a three-layer structure to the Israelites meeting with God at Mount Sinai. The people as a whole have to stay down at the foot of the mountain, the furthest away from God. Seventy of their elders are allowed to make their way up with Moses and also his brother Aaron, who is a high priest, and then Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. But then it's only Moses himself who is actually allowed to go all the way up to the summit into God's presence. The tabernacle then recreates that exact same structure. Because in chapters 26 and 27, and then again in chapters 36 and 38, God details three different spaces for the tabernacle's design. First, there would be an outer courtyard surrounding the tabernacle, and that's, again, where the people in general would be allowed to gather. Then inside, there would be a main inner room called the holy place where the priests would be allowed to go about their ministry. And then beyond that, there would be an inner room called the most holy place. And that's where only one person could go the high priest, and even then only one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement. Because that would be the space in the tabernacle where just like at the summit, at the very peak of Mount Sinai, the fullness of God's presence and glory would dwell. And so again, the point is that God isn't going to stay up there at the top of Mount Sinai, fixed, immovable, and always there so that his people would have to come to him. Instead, what we see in the tabernacle is that God has made Mount Sinai mobile. He's given them a way so that he can go with them wherever they go. He's not going to stand at a distance up at the top of a mountain peak somewhere far away from them forever. Instead, he's going to be right with them, right there in their very midst, dwelling with them every step of the way. And the same thing is still true for us today. After all, we don't have a mountain someplace where we have to go in order to meet with God. Nor do we have a tabernacle or a tent of meeting that we have to set up in order to experience his presence. We don't believe that God is up somewhere high above us, inaccessible and unconcerned about what goes on down here in our lives. Nor do we believe that he's here among us, but he's only in relationship with a select few of us. Only the best, only the brightest, only the holiest. Instead, and this is something that we'll talk about in a couple of weeks uh, more on Pentecost, as Christians, we believe that God actually dwells here, right? Within us, in our very hearts. Because of what Christ has done for us, and through his Holy Spirit, we believe that God has actually made his home in us. And so as a result, just like his presence among the Israelites in the tabernacle, he's always with us, always near to us, always close by. He doesn't leave us without his presence. 
That's what we confess as Christians. God's not up in heaven somewhere or on a mountain somewhere in the Middle East or even only hanging out in spaces like this in a church sanctuary only on Sunday mornings. Instead, he dwells with us through his Holy Spirit, which means that he is never far off. He doesn't stand at a distance from us. Instead, he's always with us everywhere we go, always close by every step of the way, always near to us no matter what, and we can never lose his presence. And when you think about it that way, there's incredible comfort in that, right? There's comfort in that, especially when we're facing difficulty or struggle in our lives. Because after all, there are times when it doesn't always feel like God is that close. Contrary to popular opinion, being a Christian doesn't mean that everything in our lives will always be perfect. It doesn't mean that we'll always have everything go the way that we want in our lives. It doesn't mean that we'll always feel like God is as close to us as he is. And yet if we hold what this book says to be true about the nature of his relationship with us, the fact is that regardless of how it might feel, God is never far from us. He's always nearby. He's always close. As Christians, we simply cannot lose his presence. He doesn't stand above the fray in some distant and disinterested way. Instead, he is right here with us always no matter what. That's only possible because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Which, of course, brings us to the gospel this morning. You see, in this text, we see God come down the mountain to dwell in a tent among the Israelites. What we see in Jesus Christ is that God has come down not just to dwell among us, but to actually be one of us. And this too, just like God coming down from Mount Sinai, is radically different from every other religion in the world. In fact, this is why one of my favorite theologians, Alexander Schmemann, says that we technically shouldn't call the Christian faith a religion at all. Because it's not. And that's because according to Schmemann, religion always has to do with us somehow making our way up to God. Just like we said, most ancient religions believed that the gods or God lived somewhere up high, above us, inaccessible, distant from us. The fact is that most modern religions believe something similar. They still believe that God is somewhere up here. You know, he's in the clouds or he's on a mountain somewhere. He's still up in the sky. In fact, even many Christians believe something like that. That God's up in heaven, way up above us, and we we can't reach him. Meanwhile, according to those religions, we're still down here, right? In our sin and our brokenness. And so the question that pretty much every other religion in the world tries to answer is how do we get from being down here all the way up to where God is? And they all have an answer. In Islam, it's the five pillars. You know, in Buddhism, it's the noble eightfold path. In Hinduism, it's, it's enlightenment or moksha. In Scientology, it's the bridge to total freedom. Even in Judaism, the way that you get to God is by following the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, with all the laws and commands and regulations found there. But at a basic level, they're all the same because they're all trying to say, this is how you can get to God. This is how you can work your way up to him. This is how you can be holy enough to be up on his level. Christianity is the only faith that reverses that. And it says rather than us being down here and having to work our way up to God, God came down 
to us. And we see that here in this text with the tabernacle, but we see it even more clearly in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Because as the son of God himself, Christ came down among us. He came and lived with us and taught us. He died in our place for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. He rose to new life so that we could have that new life too. And then in a final flourish of his grace, he gave us his Holy Spirit so that we would never lose the presence of God again. That is the hope and comfort that we hold as Christian believers. That no matter what happens in our lives, and even no matter what we do, because of Jesus Christ, God is always near to us. He's always close. He's always present with us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for your presence with us. You have been present with your people in so many different ways throughout Scripture and over the years. And yet you have made your presence most clear to us through Jesus Christ. And it's because of what he's done that your presence continues to abide with us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for that incredible gift. And thank you for that incredible comfort. And it's in the name of the Savior who has made that possible, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.